Welcome to Failure to Launch, a podcast for brand managers, entrepreneurs, and innovators around how some of the biggest brand flops, failures, and fuck-ups have shaped our lives. My name is Sam. I'm a brand strategist, consultant, and designer. And if you're in a business like mine, you'll often find yourself bombarded by stories of amazing brand innovators and entrepreneurs that explode in growth. My question is, what happens when all of that hype turns to disaster? Today, I'm joined by Mike Beck. Mike is the co-founder of Fluid Branding and its managing director. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Great to be here, Sam. So the history of products is filled with some very bitter brand rivalries like Tesco and Sainsbury's, Microsoft and Apple, or Samsung and Apple, or Amazon and Apple. (laughs) Today, we're going to talk through a really big one. Mike, what do you remember about the Cola Wars from the 90s? The specifics, not so much. I've always known that there's been great rivalry between the two big Cola brands um, and from time to time seen some uh, fairly aggressive uh, advertising and marketing um, throughout that period of time. But I've got to admit back in the 90s, I was less interested about uh, Cola and I was probably enjoying uh, beer at that stage of my uh, of my life. We'll have to do a big uh, Carlton versus VB uh, brand rivalry at some point. That would make sense. All right, so the Cola Wars. It's an epic decades-long rivalry between two of the biggest names in the soft drink industry. We've got Coca-Cola and PepsiCo. So it started all the way back in the 70s and it lasted well into the 90s with both companies fiercely battling it out for market share and consumers. Uh, These battles are fought along many fronts. Each company is trying to one-up each other in terms of product, packaging and advertising. And it's this real game of one-upsmanship with each company trying to outdo the other at every turn. Today's episode, we're going to take a slightly different approach as we look into one specific story where Coca-Cola did its very best to kill an entire subcategory of the market. So, Mike, have you ever heard the story of Diet Tab Clear? I might remember Tab through Elle McPherson. She may have been the face of that in Australia, if I recall correctly. Yeah, I think you're probably right, yes, because Tab was a diet soft drink brand that was created by Coca-Cola and introduced it back in 1963. It's marketed as a low-calorie beverage specifically for women. So Mm -hmm. the name Tab actually comes from the idea of tabulation of calories. I just want to show you one of their ads just so we can get in the mindset of um, how Tab was uh, marketed to people. So if you can, can you describe this for the audience for me? What are you saying? Well, I'm seeing a young lady in a swimsuit and uh, a, a young uh, young man. Um, he looks like a business executive sort, maybe maybe mid thirties, and he's got his hand on his chin, contemplating. And the heading says, "Stay in his mind." So it sounds like there's a fair bit of pressure on this young woman to uh, stay in shape so she can stay in uh, the leering glaze of this. Uh, this Man. Gordon Gecko type, and down the down the bottom, um, yeah, be a mind sticker as a tagline, and there is a picture of the uh, tab product. So it feels, um, yeah, quite interesting looking at an ad from another era in these uh, modern times, um, and, and the values and um, you know the um, the mores that we have now don't yes. translate too well. I'm gonna I'm gonna read a little bit of the copy off the ad. It says, um, "When you can't be with him, be in his mind." Have a shape he can't forget. Tab can help. Um, I can see Emma, the producer in the closet, uh, shaking her head in disapproval. Um, Needless to say, the ads have more or less been widely fairly denounced for perpetuating harmful stereotypes about women these days. Um, And they certainly don't reflect the values of many modern consumers, but back in the 80s, that's what Tab was. And it was seen as just for women. 
it was seen as diet, mm-hmm. you, know, no, you know, low sugar, mm-hmm. and it became a bit of a second-rate brand because of all of those things that were attached to it. This second-rate brand ends up being something that Coca-Cola will go on to wield like a cudgel against Pepsi. So in order to really understand how that comes about, we need to jump ahead from the 1970s uh, forward to the 1990s. At the time, the beverage manufacturers were really heavily preoccupied with the idea that clear drinks could communicate a sense of wellness. Perhaps it's due to the way they looked a bit like mineral water rather than the real hyper colors of most soft drinks of the time. Or maybe it was just a natural part of the kind of 90s obsession with transparent plastics, you know, Apple iMacs, those inflatable couches from then, uh, any episode of Changing Rooms. Um, but marketers really heralded the early 1990s as the origin point of what they had called the new age category of light beverages. I've got a quote from New York Times. It says, um, quote, in this category, marketing focuses on the beverage's distinct taste and elegant packaging. Buzzwords like natural, pure, and clear were starting to pop up everywhere. And after the hedonism of the 80s, some people were really waking up to the fact that Americans were actually drinking, on average, 47 gallons, or in our money, that's 178 litres of soft drink per person per year. Everyone was just trying to lose weight, eat eat healthily. Uh, Bottled water was a new kid on the block. And consumers were equating see-through drinks with health and wellness. Within this new age category, the biggest breakthrough innovation uh, by 1992 was a brand that was called Clearly Canadian. Can you describe for the audience what we're seeing here? Well, I guess it looks like clear glass bottles in sort of like a a pear shape um, with um, a a fruit motif at the the top of the bottle, but it's it's a very stripped back design called Clearly Canadian with some white type. So it looks, looks very mineral water, um, I, I would say. And quite premium? Yes, yes. So um, from the New York Times quote, it looks like mineral water, tastes like a soft drink and sells for $1 a bottle. It is clearly Canadian and it's the beverage industry's fastest rising star. So from 1990 to 91, clearly Canadian sales had let from $17 million a year to $61 million a year. Uh, do you know what Jerry Seinfeld drank on, on his show, Seinfeld? Clearly Canadian. Uh, back in the 90s, Clearly Canadian was carving out a niche as the anti-soda, and it's a bit like the kombucha brands that you see around today. They were picking up a lot of attention for it, and it's within this frame of reference that David Novak, the head of marketing at Pepsi, uh, came up with his bombshell of an idea. Quote from uh, Novak's leadership blog, you can uh, see in the show notes if you want to see the sources. Quote, while head of marketing at Pepsi, I had a brilliant idea that I thought would be my career maker, Crystal Pepsi. Crystal Pepsi would be our answer to the momentum created by Clearly Canadian's flavoured water. So in terms of actual innovations, I'm not really sure what to call this because I guess you could say that he saw what his small competitor was doing and just kind of stole the aesthetics from it. Uh, Yeah, definitely that is... um one way of doing it and it's quite common i guess if you have a small startup that's got something um you know a larger brand will often come along and essentially steal that idea and take it and make it their own well anyway you look at it novak still today calls this the greatest idea he's ever had um although he does admit he was so eager to roll it out that he pushed ahead despite some concerns from his product team Um, Again, from his blog, quote, when it came time to get the bottlers involved, I was so confident. I thought they'd probably stand and applaud by the end of the meeting. They did like the idea, but they had a concern. It didn't taste enough like Pepsi. 
He expanded on this statement in Business Insider later. He said, quote, the bottle has told me, David, it's a great idea and we think we can make it great, but it still needs to taste more like Pepsi. Roger Enrico, uh, the CEO of Pepsi at the time, backed him and explained in his book, The Other Guy Blinked, how Pepsi won the Cola Wars. Quote, the only way we could win was by having the courage to be innovative, take chances and do things differently than our competition. And they really saw Coca-Cola as their only real competition. They could ape on the cut-through created by Clearly Canadian. And then, according to a Routers article, they'd set the goal of taking over 1.8% uh, of the $47 billion market. So they're shooting for about $846 million in sales. According to a number of sources, the flavour wasn't necessarily bad, just different and a bit more subtle. Quote, unlike the usual brown colour of Pepsi drinks, Crystal Pepsi is transparent and colourless. It has a softer taste with a hint of lemon. Uh, there was a small percentage of taste testers who described it as fairly flavourless or bland, but they pushed ahead anyway, and the product was packaged in a premium glass bottle, used serif fonts and clear labelling to emphasise the more high-end positioning of this new clear cola. So here's what Crystal Pepsi looks like. Well, at first glance, Crystal Pepsi would look similar, uh, I guess, to the full um, sugar original Pepsi. Um, except um, the product's clear. You can't see the product inside the bottle. It almost looks like it's full of water, I guess. Um, and um, the label appears to be see-through. But it generally looks like a Pepsi bottle. Clear. Yeah, I mean, Not it's. I think the, um, the taller sort of bottle shape, it's slightly thinner. If you compare it to what the other Pepsis look like at the time, they're a bit rounder, a bit more clunky maybe. But overall, yeah, I totally agree. It, it has this... Uh, clear, you know, clean aesthetic. Mm -hmm. Yes, but essentially looks like Pepsi. Hasn't moved too far away, I wouldn't think. No, and probably not up in the realm of clearly Canadian in terms of the styling. No, no. According to Novak, um, as was the style at the time, Pepsi ran a test market release with a limited run in various states, and it performed really well. Novak was stoked. His baby was going to be a star, and by any complaints or queries regarding the flavour, we're just nitpicking from a team who are manufacturing the beverage at this stage. Novak was quoted in Business Insider as saying, quote, I didn't want to hear it. I was rolling the thing out nationally, and I didn't listen to them. Uh, Crystal Pepsi was going to be priced similarly to other premium soft drinks in the new age category. The exact price varied depending on location and retailer, but in 92, the suggested retail price for a 600ml bottle or 20 ounce in the US uh, was $1.25, which was about 25 cents more than regular Pepsi. So it's just a little bit more expensive, but certainly not you know, a crazy out of reach step up. So as they go to roll out nationally, um, they, they've started to think about how we're gonna promote this thing. Crystal Pepsi was introduced to the world in 93 with a huge marketing campaign, which included a prime Super Bowl ad in true Pepsi style, it featured one of the world's biggest music stars at the world, Van Halen. So we're going to have a quick watch of that ad now. So we see a baby on the seafloor. The commercial is kind of largely inspired by the original music video for Van Halen's song, uh, Right Now, which came out back in 1991. So the ad begins with a baby on the ocean floor kind of reaching up. There's text overlaying the ad that says, right now, nature's inventing better stuff than science. The ad ends with the tagline that says, you've never seen a taste like this. 
So, I mean, it's a it's a lot to take in. So we're just going to have a quick look at a couple of well, freeze frames. There was a lot going on in that, um, Ed. Sam, it was hard to describe as it was moving along because it seemed to be, you know, short little cuts of uh, different imagery all sort of patched together. Um, a, a lot to take in. And it was interesting looking at it. Um, it, was, it, it was sort of positioning itself or, or presenting quite a sort of... Um, like a, like a healthy or looking after the earth or um, a sort of more natural uh, positioning and messaging coming through, I felt, which which seems incongruous with the fact that it's a soft drink. It just doesn't seem to match up with the Pepsi brand. Uh, even though it is clear, it's hard to believe that it's um, natural or healthy or better for you, um, which was, uh, I think, some of the messaging that was they were trying to portray with the imagery. Yes, it's it's kind of, it's reaching high, don't you reckon? I feel the ad is trying to be quite higher purpose-led. You know, it's, it's trying to reach above fizzy drink and it's trying to say a lot more about kind of the earth um, as, as sort of referenced in the other slide where it said, uh, right now change is loose on the world. Um, it, it sounds like it's trying to reach for something much bigger than just, you know, fizzy drinks. Do you agree? Yes. Yeah. So it's a picture of a rhinoceros um, in its natural environment and it has a, a line of type across the image saying, right now only wildlife needs preservatives. So in that sort of reckoning, it really looks like a purpose-led campaign. Um, you're not buying Pepsi, you're buying a way to change the world. Yes. Uh, for those in the know, um, particularly in our industry, they may recognise this tendency for brands, especially within the last decade or so, to not just sell you products, but to try and sell you that you're a part of a movement or part of something bigger. Mm -hmm. Famously, this was a huge part of the climb back from the GFC, where every brand from friggin' Hellman's mayonnaise to Starbucks coffee all claimed to be changing the world. Um, you know, Starbucks famously had the line, changing the world one cup at a time, mm. which really peaked in my yeah, reckoning in yeah. 2020 with the fairly unbearable in these uncertain times uh, campaigns. Mm -hmm. Do you remember them? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. I mean, how do you feel about them? High-purpose campaigns. Oh, look, I think you've got to be careful. You, you know, if, if you reach too high, um, as I said earlier, my first reaction when I saw that, there was it, it just felt incongruous. There seems to be a mismatch between, um, you know, a, a Pepsi soft drink and uh, what they were trying to position or portray about the product. So I think purpose is is good for a, for a brand, um, but it needs to be something that's um, believable and grounded in some truth because I think people can see through it and uh, often brands can't deliver on that higher purpose claim and it falls over. So yeah, there's some risk in in it if it's, if it's not genuine. Yeah, and I think that's the key is if it's not genuine. Um, yeah. Mark Ritson of Marketing Week made a something he wanted to tilt out for years. So from his Inside Marketing, Inside Marketing podcast, he said, quote, marketing is overthinking purpose and completely overestimating the value to which consumers attach to that purpose. From another opinion piece in Marketing Week, he said, quote, time and again, we encounter the lofty, admirable sheen of brand purpose, only to discover it flakes off when even the slightest scratch to reveal a darker, more commercial subsurface beneath. Yeah, I guess my personal opinion, I'd prefer my cola company to have a purpose of making the most amazing, tastiest, 
best for me drinks. Um, I find that more inspiring. I don't need my cola company to um, save the world. I want them to be good corporate citizens and not destroy the world in, in the production of their products. But um, yeah, I guess personally, that's that's how I feel. I think there are, there are other organisations and groups that um, can, um, you know, save our wildlife and um, look after the environment. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think when you can do it genuinely, and I think you know Patagonia mm. is a good example of somebody yeah. who does it genuinely. When you do it genuinely, and when that is the purpose behind your business, it makes a lot of sense to yes. like embrace that. It's when you're trying to sell fizzy drink and you're trying to dress it up in a red frock and mm. say that it's saving the world. That's where I get kind of icky. Yeah. Eddie Van Halen actually shared a, a fairly similar level of skepticism when first approached about using his particular song for Pepsi. From his autobiography, Red, My Uncensored Life in Rock, Van, Van Halen spoke about how the studio had decided without him that they were going to be happy for Pepsi to use the song in the ad anyway. So he quote, the only reason we gave Pepsi the music was because they were going to use the song anyway. If they use the original recording, they've got to pay. But if they don't, all they do is give credit to the artist and then pay the studio fat cats. Quote, Pepsi told us they were going to do it. So we said, hey, wait a minute, we might as well get the money. I ain't proud, you know. I'm not going to say, no, go ahead, rip us off and keep the money too. So that's what they did. Van Halen was paid, uh, reported $2 million for the licensing of the song and Pepsi got their ad, Van Halen got paid. Everyone got to look like they wanted to change the world while doing nothing more than really selling a bunch of fizzy drinks. I can't blame Van Halen for taking the $2 million. $2 million isn't bad though. <laughs> if you're looking for me to have some other opinion on that, I, I think that's fine. <laughs> No, that's good. Even with the strange taste and the overreaching campaign promise, Crystal Pepsi dominated consumer attention. So when it launched, it became a really popular novelty item. Sales reached $470 million in its first year, hitting about 1% of the total uh, soft drink market and about halfway to their predicted 1.8%. So in that sort of frame of reference, that's a huge success within the first year to reach those sort of numbers, don't you reckon? Yeah, amazing. So it made such an impact that Coca-Cola sat up and took notice. Sergio Zimmon was the marketing chief at Coca-Cola at the time. And he, like many of his contemporaries, is a massive personality in the cola wars. While Zimmon was the man behind the very successful Diet Coke, he's also slightly less well-known for Tab Clear, Coca-Cola's answer to Crystal Pepsi, and perhaps the first ever kamikaze product. Have you ever heard of kamikaze products, Mike? I have not heard that term, Sam. To be honest, I had heard it, but I hadn't read into it much. And so in preparation for this podcast, I read a book called Killing Giants by Stephen Denny, um, where he actually has a whole chapter devoted to Zimmon's plan for Tab Clear. And we'll go through it. And I, I have some questions about it. I think it's an interesting approach, but um, you know, there's only so many people in the world who can really take this brand strategy. In the book Killing Giants by Stephen Denny, Zimmon outlined to Denny what Coke's approach to the problem Pepsi presented would be. Quote, Crystal Pepsi had some confusing attributes to be sure. Clear meant wellness to consumers and the product's caffeine-free formulation supported this impression. But its clear formulation made it visually similar to the lemon-lime category. Uh, he's talking about Sprite and, and drinks like that here. Even though it was a fully-fledged cola, and while clear may suggest wellness to consumers, Crystal Pepsi wasn't actually a diet drink. There was plenty to be, to be confused about. So Zimmon led the charge to reposition the competition and to make sure that confusion was known to everyone. 
Zeman planned to actively reposition Clear Pepsi out of the control of Pepsi's team. So taking agency away from them by placing his second tier tab brand alongside Crystal Pepsi. And their hope was that they would rob Crystal Pepsi of its premium brand positioning and make consumers see the entire whole subcategory as second rate. From Killing Giants again, quote, like a new fad too quickly adopted by the uncool members of the class, Crystal Pepsi's luster took an instant hit. We said, no, Crystal Pepsi is actually a diet drink, even though it wasn't, because Tab had the attributes of diet, which was its demise. That was its problem. It was perceived to be a medicinal drink. And within three or five months, Tab Clear was dead. And so was Crystal Pepsi. It was a suicidal mission from day one. Pepsi spent an enormous amount of time on the brand. And regardless, we killed it. Both of them were dead within six months. So the idea is he essentially created a formulation of Tab Clear that was entirely see-through and was never designed to last or survive. Tab Clear was made to confuse consumers by being a bad version of Crystal Pepsi. The strategy effectively shut down both product lines within six months of its release. Wow. That, um, that's amazing. Now I understand what a kamikaze product is. I, I didn't think when you said kamikaze, I thought, well, it's not going to end well for that particular product, and, uh, but at least it had a purpose. Uh, that's, that's interesting. Great story. I mean, it's, it, the, the cost to develop a whole new product, market it, mm. place it on shelves with the distinct purpose of making it fail mm. is such a big call mm. that I actually, I almost question Zimmerman here. I, I, I almost wonder if he's trying to cover his ass and say that, ah, oh, no, you know, I, that was designed to fail. I, I actually, I meant for that to be bad. That wouldn't be the first time there'd been some retrospective uh, case study. Uh... Some post-rationalization. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, he's, I mean, he's a big personality, so I wouldn't put it past him, but at the same time, you know, he, this is what he's saying and he's the only person on the ground who could tell us otherwise. Mm. Um, so Pepsi continued to invest in marketing and promotions to try and revive Crystal Pepsi's popularity, but then sales declined. In 93, Pepsi made the decision to discontinue Crystal Pepsi entirely, citing low sales, low sales and high production costs. The product was eventually discontinued from all markets by early 94. Amazingly, Clear Canadian kept chugging along for a bit longer. The once iconic brand was officially went belly up in 2009 after filing for bankruptcy and only managing to scrape together $12,000 never to return. So, I mean, it, it did continue on for quite a while afterwards, but mm, mm. Um, sadly it, it shuffled off its mortal coil um, as a mere shadow of itself. It's interesting. I, I look from from when I first saw those images of um, Crystal Pepsi. Um, you know, it just didn't look right. Um, it was interesting to hear that it had some early success. But I think the thing that's going through my mind is that um, I probably want my cola to look like cola, and it sort of leads me into category cues and um, you know what you expect to see of certain um, you know, products or, or, or categories, and I would expect cola to look like a cola. Um, and the fact that it was clear but not diet um, sort of confusing me, like the, the benefit of having a clear cola might be that you don't have any colourings, uh, so maybe there's less preservatives or, or something like that. But... Um, yeah, no, quite a confusing um, product 
category and offering and, and that, that was happening. So I'm not surprised that um, it didn't succeed in the long term. Yeah, I mean, I keep coming back to kombucha and everything that is so successful about kombucha now. Like, I'm not to say that it's a flash in the pan trend that will also be dead, mm. but it's been around for a lot longer than Pepsi Crystal was around mm. for. So I think of the su- success of brands like kombucha, wherein they were naturally brewed, you know, low, like no sugar, low sugar. Um, you know, they tasted like soft drink, they had some fizz, but they weren't in any way, you know, uh, as high sugar and as uh, artificial as a lot of the soft drinks are uh, that are in the market at the moment. So, I mean, soft drink has not ever recovered to the peaks that it got into the 90s. Like, you know, people were drinking over 200 litres per person per year um, at one stage. So it's never, ever going to get back to that. Mm-hmm. Um, people are, are way, way down. Like it's below 50 litres per person per year now. Um, it's probably never going to reach those heights again. But the thing that made it made kombucha succeed in that category is that it's natural and good for you without being kind of, you know, weirdly clear. And I don't know, I find that really off-putting personally. Hmm. I agree. Like a few other brands in the early 2010s, clearly Canadian actually tried to make a comeback. Uh, in 2014, it had a successful Indiegogo campaign they received 25,000 orders, but it failed to ignite a sort of wider re- revival of the brand. Amazingly, Crystal Pepsi actually did make a comeback in 2015 following an online campaign to bring back the soda. The le- release was uh, pretty popular and even prompted an additional a second limited release in 2022 to celebrate the product's 30th anniversary. Um, And let's not forget the piece de resistance, a taste test video that helped kicked off the entire online campaign in the 2010s that featured a YouTuber going by the name of LA Beast, chugging an entire bottle of Crystal Pepsi from the early 90s, only to probably vomit on camera. (laughs) Uh, It's a beautiful moment that truly captures the spirit of Crystal Pepsi's cult following. You know, if we had to pick one part of this product that failed, um, what do you think failed, Mike, and what would you do differently? Nice long pause can come straight out, so let's leave it in, Emma. <laughs> um, I, j- I just can't get my head around the actual product offering itself. Um, a, a clear, a clear cola that didn't seem to be offering any benefits. I think you said that it was uh, caffeine free. Yeah, caffeine free and preservative. But that's yeah, it. yeah. So caffeine free and the preservative is taken out, and it's it's gone, um, you know, clear. I mean, to, to me, as a product for cola, it just doesn't match what I would expect from a cola. It's just too big a change, and um, I, I think that advertising campaign was was an overreach. Um, but as you said, it had some early success, so it must have spoken to some consumers. And, uh, you know, it, it, it did work there for a little while. So I'd be curious to understand um, what it was that um, consumers saw in the product at that time. Yeah. I mean, despite my reservations and scepticism, because I 100% agree with you, Mike, I think that campaign was a massive overreach. But you can't deny that it did create buzz mm. at the time and it succeeded in raising the profile of the brand to such a high degree that people were still buzzing about it in 2015. Um, the product itself, like you said, definitely substandard. You know, I, I ran across so many people who were excited to try it. And then when they finally got their hands on it, complained that it wasn't all that impressive. So 
I think the the uh, the actual product sort of proposition maybe not the best, um, even in the face of the novelty of it being clear. And at the end of the day, the competition, you know, I have my doubts mm. about Zimmon, but if true, that repositioning tactic was ingenious. No, that was amazing. That's a great strategy if it was, uh, in fact, based on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, when I, when I put this to Emma, uh, when we were going through the script, she's like, well, what's the lesson? I'm like, I don't know if there's a lesson here. It's just two people who are fighting. <laughs> yeah. um, anyway, thanks for joining in today, Mike. Can you tell the audience at home what you've been working on, where they can find out more about your work? Yes, you can find out more at uh, fluid.com.au. And uh, we've been working on a, a, a wide range of uh, branding projects in the studio. And uh, yeah, one quite interested in working on at the moment is a, a retail um, chain of drive-through coffee stores, which is really interesting. And we've been working on a, a boutique skincare brand and uh, also working on an ASX-listed um, uh, company, uh, working on an annual report, corporate reporting, and uh, moving into uh, refreshing their identity. So quite a, quite a mix there. Definitely. Nothing ever stays still fluid so if you want to know anything more about what we spoke about today check out the show notes for sources or visit fluid.au to find out more about what we've been working on so uh, join us next time on failure to launch when we look at another spectacular launch that ended in one of the world's biggest flops failures and fuck-ups that shaped our lives The opinions and views expressed on Failure to Launch belong to the individual speaking and do not represent the official views of Fluid Branding.